0: Welcome to Ghosts Were People Too, a podcast that investigates ghosts through the lens of the arts and humanities. I'm Annabelle. And I'm Quest. Say cheese. Cheese. Good one. You look absolutely ghastly.
1: Thank you. Today we're talking about the work of Angela Dean, a contemporary artist who paints onto photographs. But before we get started, you have a poem to share?
0: Yes, I found this in a 1934 volume of Prairie Schooner, and I think it speaks perfectly to themes of nostalgia, kitsch, and American memory. I should warn you, though, the ghosts have feet. Actually, they have quick legs
1: cute let's hear it i don't know what that means
0: <laughs> nostalgia by james morgan the long lonesome prairie cracks its lips under the gawky sunlight hungering after clappards rattling Ya, ya, the little quick-legged ghosts sit and yap at the moon Pony hoofs, clicking on the pebbles, leave no tracks where the cottonwoods toss their shade onto the creek bed. The gophers dig no holes in the asphalt. The sagebrush dust has sifted into the tin cans littered. Death rode off into the purple hills, with memories sticking like cockleburrs to his pony's mane. Yah, ya yeah, the little quick-legged ghosts sit and yap. At the moon. Thank you. Thank you.
1: Wow, that was beautiful. I like... This is my theater brain going, but I like the sounds. Like the vowels, the consonants. There's a lot of nice like sound symbolism going on. They all... I don't know. They go together. It, it, it has a texture to it.
0: Yeah, it does have a great sound. Sage brush sifted tin cans. Cockleburrs.
1: yeah exactly tin cans littered
0: and i and the yeah yeah <laughs> I, I i would love to hear what james morgan the author would have said like, would he have said yeah yeah or
1: yeah or, ha, ha. <laughs> it definitely makes me think of a horse rider or a oh. cowboy
0: yeah yeah Ooh, the little yeah. quick-legged ghosts okay yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> yes. um so As I said earlier, I really liked this poem to set the tone because we are going to be getting into this yearning feeling, this nostalgia, but also the sort of quaint, quirky, and even kitschy elements of that feeling of longing toward the past today.
1: Yeah, and we're also going to get into some discussion of... The way that nostalgia works with country and agrarianism.
0: Americana.
1: Yeah. And so this definitely fits into that universe, that conversation.
0: Yeah. So let's get into it without further ado.
1: So that poem has nothing to do, at least on the surface, with Angela Dean, this contemporary artist who... You may actually know even if you don't know her by name, and we'll get into that in a moment. So we like to do our podcast from a slideshow. That's the way that it works best for me, kind of a lecture format. So interspersed into our slides are various works of hers. They are probably not going to take a lot of visual description, and you can find all of them at her website, Angela Dean. That's dean d-e-a-n-e dot com, I believe. So you can find them rather easily. We'll be giving the title in year. I bet that any search engine of your choice will pull them up. So as an emblematic work, I chose Spin Me Round 2019, which is a found photograph. Of the teacups ride at Disneyland.
0: It looks like it was taken on film. It's difficult to tell exactly when. It looks like it could be anywhere from the 60s to the 90s.
1: Definitely. I feel that. And we have the array of teacups. We have the house that sits in the middle of the line that I assume has some...
0: It's got a thatched roof. It looks like it's maybe from it's, um, Alice in and, Wonderland.
1: Yeah, it's Waddle and Daub architecture. Ah. That's the thing I've learned. And there's the um, Chinese lanterns, quote unquote, hanging above the ride. That house must have like, what, mechanical something inside of it? I'm sure. that That is not important.
0: No. What is important, Quest? There
1: are tons of people waiting in line, sitting in the teacups, only hand-painted onto the photograph Over all of these people are sheet ghosts, white paint covering up the people with little black eyes. What's nice about this picture is since the way that the teacups work is sometimes there are backs to the viewer of the photograph. You can tell that those are the backs of the ghosts because they don't have eyes.
0: I may have just been able to date this picture. Oh. In the background, you can see the sky... What's it called?
1: Oh. I'm a bad
0: Disney nerd. Yeah,
1: I don't know. Um, but the the cable cars.
0: Yeah, that used to go across the park from, I think, like the Matterhorn to mm-hmm. a station. So this is some time before those were closed. So this... St- okay, well, you can cut this out because that is still from somewhere between 1960 and 1990. <laughs>
1: And as a second picture, just to set the scene, Pool Days 2021, although the photograph itself has the date June 1968 printed on the side, it's a very faded photograph of a public pool.
0: There are those little ghosties in there again.
1: They're sliding down the water slide, there is one lounging on a bench, and there are two with their little ghost heads poking out of the water.
0: Yep. You can tell by the way that we are describing these ghosts that they're cute. They're kind yeah. of simplified figures. We're not looking at some sort of photorealistic painting of a sheet or anything. Right. It- they
1: are as simplistic and like almost geometric as they could be, the little gravestone, tombstoney shape with little black dots for eyes. Mm-hmm. A thing I've noticed looking at her work is over time, I think the ghosts have gotten a little bit more stylistic consistency and the eyes have gotten bigger, in my opinion. And stop staring at me with them big old eyes! Hmm. Her gallery is not exactly sorted by date, but I believe that newer ones have bigger eyes, which makes them look cutesier.
0: Right. We know this from the psychology of selling children's toys that you just make the eyes bigger and bigger and bigger and the kids get more and more ravenous (laughs) for the cuteness
1: okay i have been inflicted with the knowledge of these dolls they're called poopsies there might be more to their name than that and they are the unholy abomination crossing a teen fashion doll like barbie yeah a baby doll and a gross out toy because oh, no, they, do they do poop slime.
0: No. But you
1: dress them in like kind of sexy teen outfits, but they have baby proportions and also they're unicorns.
0: Slime surprise. My poops, my poops, my so is this what it means t- for us to come into adulthood and and (laughs) like child rearing age in a post-capitalist hellscape
1: yeah i mean late capitalist and like everything just trying to wring (laughs) as much money out of everything do
0: you like how i tried to call it post-capitalist as if we've escaped
1: so this is the work of angela dean (laughs) (laughs) These ghost paintings are her most well-known work. And I've just copied and pasted her artist statement from her website.
0: It says, Baltimore-based artist Angela Dean, while best known for her small paintings on photographs, is currently pursuing an ever-growing body of larger works on canvas. In many of her creations, there is a playfulness to be found, one tied to nostalgia the sweet married to the bittersweet, but also emerging is a strong buoyancy of spirit, a kind of spiritual mapping, both in process and evocation of the completed piece.
1: She has shown both domestically and internationally with highlights, including a group show at the Daegu Museum in South Korea and a commission by Gucci to create a mural in Milan, Italy.
0: And as Quest already said, she may be most well-known by at least a certain... And (laughs) population.
1: The Tumblr girlies.
0: And, And the gays for doing the art for Phoebe Bridger's Stranger in the Alps in 2017.
1: And I don't know, I would have to look into this more, but honestly, information about her was a little bit sparse, whether this was an existing piece that Phoebe Bridger's used, because I mean, existing artworks are often used for album covers, or whether this was commissioned.
0: Yeah, I don't know either.
1: So I've never listened to Phoebe Bridgers.
0: I don't know what to say. <laughs> what do you want me to say?
1: I just have no context for how her music even like fits with
0: oh, this art. Like oh.
1: aesthetically, you know, does it like...
0: Okay, so what I would say for this album, as somebody who is not an expert, but I've I've heard the album, it's very full of longing and sadness. And there's a lot of processing of... Childhood to adolescence, and like a lot of the emotions around that, growing up, and and all of that. So I I think that might be how that is ties in.
1: That's really good to know. Yeah. I did look at the track list to see if there was maybe one specific song that would link most to the album art because there sometimes is. So there is a song on the album called "Funeral." Yes. Which I still did not listen to or even <laughs> okay. look up the lyrics of. But that's because this isn't about Phoebe Bridgers today. It's a good sorry thing it's not a you. Taylor
0: Swift album. They'd be coming for you.
1: <laughs> I don't want to think about that woman. <laughs> Boy, howdy. All right. So the ghost photographs or ghost paintings, they are called both on her website are her most well-known piece of work. Obviously that is not the entirety of her practice, but that's what we're going to focus on here because hi, you know what podcast you're listening to. I think that I also found interesting about Angela Dean is that a lot of her artists statements, they're rather poetic the way that she writes them. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to read to you her ghost photographs statement found po- Found photographs, not necessarily lost, but able to be found. A history held within a snapshot, unknown. I put paint to paper, and in doing so, turn the specific into the abstract. Face becomes ghost, person becomes vessel, and vessel is open for possession. You may haunt these ghosts. Through this manipulation of the material, the ghosts become us, and we become the ghosts. We become the ghosts of our everyday.
0: She is me. I have that in the slides. Do you? Oh, I guess I didn't look at your slides very closely. I, like I didn't to be, look at yours at all. I know. I like to be surprised. Boo. Boo. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> this is a great artist statement. I like that it's poetic. I think it just like she writes, person becomes vessel and vessel is open for possession. I feel like choosing to do it as a sort of poem rather than an explanatory paragraph Uh, leaves this a lot more open to our interpretation, but it also gives us enough to work with that there's some context for the work
1: yeah and also while i'm not a visual artist i can understand why it can be so annoying to have to write them it's like shouldn't speak for itself
0: this is why we make visual art rather than (laughs) writing
1: and leaving it like this it's kind of guiding you to what she wants you to think about without having to say i seek to get this from you i seek to make this kind of statement
0: yeah this is almost more direct and more palpable in some ways than when you have to deal with all that academic jargon that you see over and over to the point where it becomes almost meaningless. Yeah. But I
1: like academic jargon.
0: Me too. And wait, uh, save a little nugget for later because I have a title of a paper for you later that is just going to blow your top. <sighs>
1: and getting to that academic jar-
0: <laughs> Get to it quest.
1: And getting to that academic jargon, just fully self-aware, this section is titled Presence and Absence, Ghost Paintings and Spirit Photography. Today I am drawing from two chapters of larger books that I read, Photography in Spirit by John Harvey, Chapter 3, Art, and At the Edge of Sight, Photography in the Unseen by Sean Michelle Smith, Chapter 5, Shansonetta Stanley Emmons' Nostalgic Views. Also kind of peppered through here, I've put in some of Angela Dean's statements to kind of get us thinking in her th- thought process as and, we move into the specific research, because boy, can you not find anything about her specifically.
0: And I think it's it's great that this is here because we need to be anchored. We're going to be branching off as usual into all sorts of academic discussions that are related, but maybe not particularly about Angela Dean. And so we're going to try and go back to the photographs and back to her statements as often as we can.
1: Right. This is all about applying things from other sources, which has often had to be my academic MO. There's nothing about the thing I want to talk about, but there are things that touch on it. And I have to then do the work of applying what I read. So Angela Dean writes... These are the ghosts of our moments. And this is on the page of her website where the ghost photographs are found. And then she puts the quote, We are the ever-living ghost of what once was. And she attributes this to Ben Bridwell of Band of Horses, and it's specifically from the song No One's Gonna Love You. Hope that means something to you, listener.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think we're going to later get into... Or touch upon the 2010s, which is when she started making this work and what was going on in terms of nostalgia Mm. at that time. And I think quoting Band of Horses is very on the nose.
1: So I also don't know Band of Horses or this song. I
0: just know that during the 2010s, people were posting Band of Horses on Tumblr a lot. (laughs) (laughs) We'll leave it at that.
1: So... We've had a history, uh, that's apropos, of delving into deep history before discussing a topic. And this is far briefer than usual, especially because we're going to touch on stuff that we've already talked about in prior episodes. But we're going to start talking a little bit about the history of photography because it really plays into the way you talk about visual representations of nostalgia. Mm Romantic painter Paul Delaroche has been attributed as saying, quote, From today, painting is dead, upon seeing a daguerreotype for the first time. But John Harvey, the author of Photography and Spirit, writes, Like the human spirit, painting was capable of post mortem survival in a somewhat different form, too. Which reminded me a bit of our episode on Luigi's Mansion, where we talked about portraiture.
0: Yes. There's kind of a direct line between the function of a painting and the function of a photograph, and they play on each other, and they have come to function both in the same way, but also in new ways since, as we know, painting is not dead. I'm not dead!
1: Yeah, I would just qualify that statement saying historically painting, because then once we enter the 20th century with the modern... Movement and the.
0: Well, I'm um, thinking of Picasso. Exactly. Right? I was
1: going to say the introduction of abstraction into the mainstream through yeah, Picasso, Hilma of Klimt, who we will talk about on an episode one of these days because mm-hmm. she was a big spiritualist.
0: Mm-hmm. People started asking, what can painting do that photography can't? And that created a whole new realm of ideas.
1: Yeah. So photography did not kill painting, but the function of visual art shifted with the advent and spread of the photographic image. As you just said, Mm -hmm. (laughs) ask not what you can do for painting, ask what painting can do for you.
0: Period.
1: But it did prove a threat to miniature portraitists because their job was just to
0: create likenesses of people exactly. to create keepsakes yeah and ph- that definitely went to photography
1: right and we talked in the luigi's mansion episode specifically about the way that portraiture had made the act of representation and keeping a version of you that would last through the ages it was gate kept from the lower classes mm-hmm. because they were less likely to be able to afford these portraits
0: and Photography democratizes this experience. Anyone can walk, almost anyone can walk into a portrait studio and afford to have at least one portrait done in their lifetime.
1: Right. And I also think about the Schitt's Creek episode where they do pose for a painted portrait or they did in the past and they're trying to decide what to do with
0: it. And it, it seems very gauche and ridiculous to have... That sort of portrait done, (laughs) at least for this in this instance and that in that show. I love the word
1: gauche, and I do not use it often enough. And I did just think gauche were people too.
0: (laughs) Moira Rose would definitely use the word gauche. Okay, on with the show. So, early
1: photography frequently took place in the studio environment, taking from this history of portraiture, and subjects' photos were usually taken in front of painted sets.
0: Ooh, collab.
1: Yeah, or just like constructed sets, and they definitely were trying to make it look like you were in either a beautiful pastoral location mm-hmm. or sitting properly for a portrait, as had been the past. And I think about the way that this shifted to that '90s marble background, yes, oh.
0: or or the very glowy, floaty '1980s glamour shots where it's kind of soft around the edges
1: yeah i I think about school picture day mm-hmm. and i feel like there was a point at which you were allowed to put like what color you wanted as the background mm-hmm. instead of like relegating that to your parents make
0: your eyes pop
1: <laughs> <laughs> with this shift in class harvey says quote For members of the working class, photography also helped to dignify and preserve a record of their life outside their habitual and often humdrum existence. Photography enabled the working class to transcend their habitual environment and to fantasize about sharing in the trappings and aspirations of a far more affluent and leisurely lifestyle end quote. And that partially is realized in these sets, which you were photographed in front of.
0: That's so interesting. I don't want to jump ahead too far because I'm starting to see where this is going. But I feel like today, we are still engaging in photography like this, playing affluent and creating imagined experiences through photography. But... I think that's also mixed in with the documentary everyday photography that I think we're going to be talking about when we get into leisure photography. Yes,
1: definitely. So
0: we we kind of have the whole smorgasbord now.
1: (laughs) Right. So I'm just going to go straight from Wikipedia here. Kodak the company we now know, Mm -hmm. put photography in the hands of the public at the turn of the 20th century, evinced by their 1888 slogan, you press the button, we do the rest. Quote from Wikipedia, photography became available for the mass market in 1901 with the introduction of the Kodak Brownie. I know, right? It's great. It's great. So again, this is a lot of the stuff we've said and what I thought was interesting is that the other person I read, Sean Michelle Smith, noted that the marketing of photography by Kodak at the turn of the 20th century imbued in the consumer the notion of photography as an apparatus for nostalgia.
0: Ah, you keep your memories in the photographs. Yeah. And it's not just memories of people or individuals, it's also memories of vacations and life events and maybe even smaller everyday aspects of life
1: yeah definitely not in 1901 yet at least i don't think that you were photographing the everyday as much no
0: i'm getting ahead yeah Um, but that's what it becomes right but at least major life events for sure weddings And we start to get photographs of like swim teams and uh, groups, various types of groups. Yeah,
1: well, and I think about what has happened in our grandparents' lifetimes, our parents' lifetimes, and our lifetime, Mm -hmm. the way that the photo and eventually video have become so much more and more Available, mm-hmm. And even the difference between a film camera, a Polaroid, a disposable, a digital camera into the camera phone. Mm-hmm. My parents, who I'm like never thought about it, but have much more of a photo tradition between them than many families I know where they still own a separate camera from their phones. Mm -hmm. It's not like, you know, a a DSLR or anything, but it's a nice digital camera. And then the photos get printed. Mm -hmm. I think they've outlasted even, I don't think Costco prints photos for them anymore. I think they have to order them from Shutterfly. Yeah, And then my mom puts them into physical albums, which people do less and less. Right. So we see the way that the camera has just evolved so much in its relatively short lifespan.
0: Yeah, and I don't know if we'll really be able to get into it, but I think the acceleration of photo sharing and ability to take photos has a lot to do with our turn back to the older technologies and a nostalgia, which we're going to talk a lot about, for these momentous occasions remaining momentous and feeling like a, a snapshot from your life. Because how can you feel like something is momentous and an important snapshot if you can take a picture of anything all yes, the time? Yes, definitely. And I think people deal with that in a lot of different ways, but we can maybe get to that later. Yeah,
1: And so just keeping in mind the way that the photographic tradition and our relationship as people with photographs have changed, Mm -hmm. I pulled this quote from Harvey as well. Quote, Unlike traditional cameras, the phone camera is used not only on special occasions, but also to capture the more transitory and spontaneous moments of experience and to share them across a network of remote social relations, phone to phone, face to face. He also says that camera phone technology, quote, Presence's absence by defeating distance and uniting loved ones.
0: Interesting.
1: So now you can just take a picture immediately. Like, I just got your letter. If you wrote me a letter, that was such a weird (laughs) retro choice. But I guess I'm in the spirit of Christmas cards. There you go. Or, Or I just tried on the thing that you bought me. I got home and I tried it on and I immediately took a picture and sent it to you. And now you don't have to wait to see me next. I don't have to call you to tell you that you can just know that as soon as I got home, I did that and I just sent it to you.
0: I just did that the other day. My dad sent me a book. I took a picture of the book sitting on my lap and sent it back to him and was like, I got it. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it does it defeat distance in that way.
1: Yeah, and it also, it again, I think that presencing absence is a really interesting idea. It, it mm-hmm. makes it so I can feel like This person is with me whenever I want, or that I'm with them. They can, you know, see what I'm doing.
0: In a much less creepy way than those apps that send your heartbeat to your partner.
1: I don't like that Never
0: a sponsor.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And as we move into the ghostly specifically, I also want to talk a little bit about Roland Barthes.
0: I just left my body for a second. Uh,
1: Quoting Harvey one more time. Let me just be clear. I, two things. One is that a lot of these quotes were just so well written that I couldn't come up with a better way to say what was being said, which we connected about before we mm-hmm. started recording. And I also mentioned right now there's a lot of buzz online about plagiarism in the video essay community. And while we've always been very careful to cite our sources and quote when we're quoting and so on and so forth, I, I it's been on my mind, and I just want to be very clear when I am using another person's words. So, you know, full disclosure. Quote, Bart established an essential relation between photography, death, and melancholy. The melancholy of photography resided in its propensity for fateful prophecy and temporal ambiguity. It showed not only people who were dead, but also people who will one day die, and people who are dead as though they were alive. Oof.
0: <laughs> well, that was a mouthful, but also that hits hard. <laughs> That's all I got to say. <laughs> it makes me
1: think of a certain idea in some Christian cosmology where everyone who is going to heaven is always already in heaven. And, oh. ev- and so they're like time, time is, time is, kind is not of, linear. Right. And so all the souls that are going to heaven are already in heaven.
0: And we're just stuck in this horrible experience of... Feeling time is linear when everything is already predestined.
1: Yes, more or less. And and the idea that through photography, we all share in our having lived, kind of. Not our living and not our dying, but our having lived.
0: Yeah, and I guess there's a real consciousness when you are taking pictures that you are taking pictures because that moment is fleeting.
1: Yeah, Death, of course, we've talked about its relationship with photography in Mm -hmm. mentions of postmortem photography and mourning traditions in the Victorian era. We've also talked a lot about your pet topic. I like to think of it, spirit photography.
0: Is it my pet? I feel like you introduced me to spirit photography many a year ago, but I do love the topic. And if you want to hear more about that, episode two, we talk about it at length. But the reason we're mentioning it here is because, of course, Angela Dean's ghost paintings are reminiscent of spirit photography in their themes, but also in the way she composes them, because I hate to break it to you, but spirit photography is often <laughs> am I going to try and make a disclaimer is always is always doctored by the artist, right that the artist creates the illusion that a spirit has been captured
1: yeah what was so funny as i was reading this chapter by harvey is he was intentionally not making a claim on whether all spirit photography was doctored he was intentionally leaving a certain amount ambiguous
0: even i don't like to say it like there's something about it that just makes my heart hurt because What do I know? Well, what I do know is that the Victorians who were taking spirit photographs were definitely faking it. You're a fake and a phony and I wish I'd never laid eyes on you. Yeah. (laughs) I'm choking this out here. I'm choking this out. (laughs) They're fake.
1: And if we think about the history of spirit photography, it was predated by manual forms of visual expressions of spectral presences, such as automatic writing or automatic drawing, or where artists claimed to have artistic visions bestowed upon them by the deceased or the spectral. And so Harvey forwards the notion of the artist in these circumstances as channeler, expressing the spirit's will through the literal medium. And I also question, or is it the channeler as artist?
0: Mm. Either way, that's a much more beautiful way to look at it than these fakes trying to mooch off of unsuspecting emotional right, mourners.
1: It's a very interesting thing. Like We like to talk about the fakery of spiritualism and how goofy it was how transparent no pun intended a lot of the methods were and yet they were they were swindling people who were vulnerable emotionally Mm -hmm. and that you know continues today with a lot of the spiritual mediumistic practices
0: right and without getting too far off topic here it also brings up the question of how much do the people who are swindling other people actually buy into their own BS, right? Because I think sometimes, you know, you can think about this with cult leaders, too. Like, are they only in it to take advantage of the people who are trusting in them? Or is there also a part of them that has allowed themselves to believe this because it benefits them.
1: Right, exactly. So there is some gray to
0: this conversation.
1: Now, tying this back around to Angela Dean, and I think that this should become pretty clear what I'm getting at here. Mm -hmm. Harvey notes of Spirit Photographers, quote, once a particular way of rendering ghosts was established, often early in their career, motifs, compositions, and spectral types are thereafter repeated with, at times, exasperating constancy, end quote. He attributes this to the business side of spirit photography, that, oh, well, I want one just like hers. Mm-hmm. Can you give me that one? Mm-hmm and the alleged science behind it. It's easily reproducible for various clients, and it creates the illusion of consistent reproducibility akin to scientific results. If you do an experiment, one of the most important things is that other people can get the same results you did if they follow the same experiment.
0: Right. So this might be a little controversial, but I think it's there. This is evidence of commerce-controlling art, And because I see some kitschiness in Angela Dean's work, it makes me wonder, like, is this the kind of thing where somebody falls in love with this style and she knows it's going to work again and again and everyone is going to want some version of the Angela Dean's signature look? Because you see you see the Phoebe Bridgers album cover and maybe you're a huge fan and you think, oh, I would love to buy the teacups picture with the same sort of feel. And I also am a fan of Disneyland. And so there's this sort of marketable aspect to the art as well, which I would say doesn't dilute its potency as a piece of art. And we'll talk about that later also when we talk about kitsch and women. Because those two things tend to overlap. (laughs) But it's this aspect of the world that we live in, the commodified, postmodern, commercialized world.
1: Yeah, and I also do believe, A, Angela Dean is probably aware of the, you know, simplicity, reproducibility of these pieces. I mean, the whole thing is, she buys found photographs. Right, right. And I also think that she wouldn't really be offended if somebody went home, you know, and thought, oh, wow, I love that and did one of their own, you know?
0: And and I think there is an element of the message of the art coming through with this reproducible quality of it.
1: And also, I will just add that, like, from her artist statement, she kind of says, like, Angela Dean is best known for this, but right now she's focusing on other stuff that's like. This isn't the more only complex. thing I do. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah. We've talked about technology influencing ghostliness, but we haven't talked that much about commercial influences on conceptions of ghosts and nostalgia yeah. and ghostliness. And I think this is one of those instances where it's very obvious that something that can be reproduced and you can get one just like your friend we can have matching ghost portraits yeah and i mean that in the in the sense of like the spirit photographers of the 1800s but that definitely was driving the art that we get
1: i also don't want to be too glib about what the circumstances under which people are taking spirit photos and by that i mean the sitter Mm -hmm. because spirit photography emerged at the time of the civil war resulting in its development as a consolatory medium. As this function faded, however, and this is part of why I wanted to talk about this, because I just was, I was reading this and I kept thinking about how this relates to Dean. The art form of spirit photography changed. Quote from Harvey again, Relieved of the burden of consolation, the genre could now relinquish the burden of representation. He also says, the defiguration of the ghost in spirit photography likewise reintroduced a sense of the spirit's strangeness and apartness, depersonalizing the apparition by the removal of traditional signifiers of identity and personhood, and emphasizing instead its status as a phenomenon, which I think is very mm. evident in Dean's work. She mm-hmm. removes identifying features in place, puts a ghost. Yeah. And I also thought that this was really interesting. Harvey writes of Mumler, listen to episode two for more on Mumler, that he believed that, quote, mediums were to spirits what vacuum tubes were to electricity. They made the invisible visible.
0: And now we have Dean making the visible invisible. We've come full circle here. And I think that is what in some ways makes it art. Yeah. Right. Although that's not to say that spirit photography was not art, but <laughs> but there's a an artistry in that choice, well,
1: uh, and also, I think there is the fact that and this is a little maybe too self-evident, but it's like. Angela Dean is making art as an artist and selling it as art. Spirit photographs were pseudoscientific. It was like there was the commercial aspect, there was the psychological aspect, and it was an art, we would say nowadays. But at the time, they would say, what? I'm just taking these pictures right. and the ghosts appear. This is just a documentation of phenomena.
0: Right. Vacuum tubes to electricity.
1: Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And that was one of the things that I thought was interesting that Harvey pointed out about spirit photography, that because technology was perceived as infallible. And when you read more about spirit photography, there is some really interesting stuff about the ways that they conceptualize this and the ways that, and we talked about this in the episode a bit, that like x-rays had just been discovered and Mm x-ray machines had just been invented. And so... We're dealing in new things that we've never thought possible before. So this was thought of as being, you know, a new technological possibility. Right. So photographs were seen to be scientific. That's part of their kind of problem in their history is how they were often used for like race science. Mm -hmm. So because it was perceived as infallible... Photography allowed a means of manifesting ghosts that seemed to remove the necessity of human interference, i.e. like through the medium and the way that the medium acts as an interpreter or channeler. It's just here's a photo and ghosts appeared in it and the machine did it all.
0: Right. And this kind of gets into the idea of a picture is worth a thousand words and that a picture doesn't lie, which, of course, we know... It very much can, but there's this faithfulness to what has been captured that has never existed until this moment. And so that has a huge effect on the way people view photographs. I, I think of like a detective picture where and I mean picture is a movie, like a moving picture. I, I think of like a detective movie where they're using photographs as proof yeah. of the crime and yeah. that's a the that trope you see again and again and this is really a place where photography lives in the public consciousness for a long time yes maybe even still today
1: yeah yeah i mean like <laughs> we're a little old on the internet i remember pictures or it didn't happen
0: right and I, I mean i think we're more jaded about it now because we know what can be faked right But I think there is still a value put on proof.
1: Right, yeah. By pictures. And the other thing that we should also think about with regard to pictures and photography as a medium, especially as we enter in this conversation, is the way that photography captures a moment without context. A past without present or future. A scene without its surroundings. Smith writes... What is visible depends upon what is not seen. You don't see the photographer. You don't see all of the clutter that was in the set that then they moved off to take this picture. You didn't see the moment before or the moment after.
0: And and again, I hope I'm not jumping ahead too much. But in that way, photographs work a lot like memories because people tend to remember the Good parts, as more time goes on, people tend to remember the good parts of experiences and forget all of the awkward, uncomfortable, or challenging parts unless it's something particularly traumatic. I'm trying to remember if I read this in the Grafton Tanner book I'm going to talk about later or if it was in something else. There was a a study of children recounting their summers their summer vacations. And when they asked them the day after summer vacation, they gave all of the details of what happened, including a lot of the bad things. Then they asked them six months later, I think, and as summer got further and further away, they were giving highlight reels. And so I think it's very interesting that we in photography have the potential to get a highlight reel of memories, just like What happens in our actual brains?
1: Right, I can't not think about the quote from the Barbra Streisand song "The Way We Were."
0: She's a scientist. (laughs) What can I say? She
1: did not write the song.
0: She's still queen.
1: So. There was one very specific reason I put these spirit photos into the slides. One has two sitters next to each other. There is actually a portrait in the background behind them. Here we start to see the ways in which spirit photography became more abstract and stopped being as representational, as those earlier quotes discussed. And in front of one of the sitter's faces is an extra, as they're called, which Seems to be made of cotton with a photograph glued in the middle of it. And then the other photo we're looking at has a woman looking not dead at the camera, no pun intended. And there is a face with some sort of veil floating around it. These photos are by Ada Dean. Circa 1922. Not
0: to be confused.
1: I'm reading this chapter about spirit photography, and Dean, with an E at the end, keeps getting referenced. And I'm like, wait, Dean's photos? What? And then realizing, oh, it's Ada Dean.
0: Wow. (laughs) Good synchronicity.
1: But for comparison, we have The Edge of Here by Angela Dean.
0: Is that Moro Rock? I think it is. That's why I chose it. Okay. So... We have a photograph of what is probably Moro Bay, the big rock, Moro Rock at Moro Bay, or some other large rock with <laughs> a beachy surrounding. There's the sand in the foreground, the water in the background, and in the very, very front, we have two ghosts painted into the picture as if they are posing for a vacation photo. Yeah.
1: yeah, exactly. And the photo is definitely yellowed, the edges are very yellowed, and the
0: colors are faded. And it's hard to tell whether there were people standing in this photograph before or if the ghosts were simply painted in
1: Yeah, I'm not—you would know more about this than I would. I don't know a lot about how paint specifically works, (laughs) despite my art history degree. The thing that I always find so interesting about Dean's paintings is that the paint is thick enough to obscure the figures, so you can't necessarily tell if there are people there, but the brushstrokes are also not heavy enough that you can still see some of the background through them.
0: Yeah, it seems like she just got a consistency in the paint that works
1: yeah, and to in obscure
0: and, yeah, and in the technique to both obscure and, like you said, still let something of the background through.
1: And that's also something probably worth noting about her pictures is that the strokes are very visible.
0: Yes, and it seems like also very sparingly done.
1: Yes. So, Elizabeth Siegel on 19th Century photocollage said, When makers combined the facts of photography with the fictions of painting, they created a new kind of representation. Such practices allowed, even encouraged them, to expand the limitations of photography. And we can see how that sits right between spirit photography and Angela Dean. We can see a similarity between her work and spirit photography in the doctoring of the image after its initial capture, Editing the moment in its afterlife. Sometimes I do write pretty.
0: (laughs) I may have mentioned this video before, maybe in the spirit photography episode, but it's worth shouting out again that Bernadette Banner, she's a costume historian on YouTube. She has a really great video about quote unquote photoshopping of the 19th century and how certain tricks of painting were used to Dr. Images. She's focusing more on the aesthetics of a slim waist and exaggerating various facial features, but people were also colorizing photos and doing all sorts of things to photos during that time period, just as they do now, but with paint, which connects more closely to the artists that we're focusing upon today.
1: Yeah, definitely. And that reminds me a lot in tandem with What we were talking about before about what's not in the photo, but created the photo. Mm -hmm. I'll touch upon that more in a little bit. So this quote I'm going to provide with a little less context because I'll contextualize later. But Smith comments on how the photographer Chansonetta Stanley Emmons makes her presence known through her photographs by, quote, calling attention to their constructed nature. He also says that her lantern slides, where she printed her photos to be projected on slides, quote, register her physical touch. Thus, even when we can't see her in her photographs, Emmons marks her invisible presence in these scenes, registering her play with the unseen, end quote. Though Dean is not the author of the photos she uses, there's definitely similar work going on here through her act of painting upon them. We have this oh god, I have to dig back into early art history classes I took. Index. A photo is an index. It signifies a real extant thing. This is the like monument to this place or people or whatever we're seeing. And now Dean is kind of Kilroy is here. She's marking that she also has been at this photograph.
0: Yeah, you can see the layers of different views, different, like like a gaze yeah. in multiple layers. You see the touch of the artist who has looked at this picture and interpreted it in a certain way, and then you see the original Yeah, behind that, and then there are the people who were there to experience the photo... The- the photograph (laughs) there were there people there to experience the photograph being taken and the actual scene yeah so
1: i was going to even anticipating myself but i was going to refer to dean as a participant here we have the participants in the sitter quote-unquote of the photograph the Mm. person taking the photograph and now we have angela dean as a new participant yeah spirit photography okay this i thought was so weird but it makes a lot of sense It often seemed prescient of the location of its extras, meaning that because the spirit photographer is doctoring the photograph, they can plan. So they might hang a curtain in a specific place to add a little bit more black because they're going to put the ghost there later. Right. But they have to do that when the photo is being taken. The set dressing, as I'm saying, often sets the scenes for apparitions who are going to appear after the photo has taken. Dean instead renders the subjects of her photos into these spaces of what I'm calling potential ghostliness. Mm. The sitter is transformed into the
0: extra. And so her version of planning is selecting the photographs and selecting the photographs that would work best to ghostify.
1: Well, and also because in a spirit photo, you have two subjects. You have your sitter and your extra. And so she...
0: She's making collapses them, them into two, one
1: category. Or, yeah. yeah, I
0: mean, yes, she's taking two and making them one.
1: When two become one. Since spirit photographs were generally produced for the sitter's benefit, the sitter as the audience of the photo, I was wondering who is the audience for Dean's photos?
0: I would say anyone who is going to insert themselves into the abstract, right? But I think it also relies upon a collective yearning towards a certain time period, or I guess generations of people who experienced this type of photography as part of their memory making.
1: Yeah, I wonder what the reach is for people who did not experience photography in that same way. And I suppose that part of the answer is that due to the way photographs work, that there is It lasts, you know, even when that photographic tradition is no longer the norm, it's still around that people who grew up with different photographic traditions, which is such a weird (laughs) thing to conceptualize, are still going to be familiar with like the concept of a printed photo.
0: Well, on this thread, uh, can I actually jump ahead to something I was going to talk about later and and just go to it now? Um, Because I read this article about ruins, like the Colosseum, like those kinds of ruins. And I saw a similarity between what Dean was doing with photographs and what people do when they go to visit sites of historical importance and the way we interact with those sites. And so Elizabeth Scarsborough, in an essay called Unimagined Beauty, writes about how people have often said that we go to ruins to appreciate what was lost. And she said that is sometimes true, but sometimes people go to ruins to appreciate something that they never experienced. And they can still have a meaningful experience with these ruins, even if they never, for example, knew the details of what happened in the war that was supposed to take place on the land that they're visiting. Or... I guess in this case, if you showed, what's the next generation, Gen Alpha? Yeah. If you showed Gen Alpha these photographs, I think they might still appreciate the beauty and the longing in them, even if they had no personal connection to that kind of photography. And I look at the Angela Dean photographs that she selected. And I, th- I think, oh my gosh, that looks exactly like the format of a picture of my grandmother. But even if you didn't have that experience, you could still look at all of the cultural trappings and mythologies that go along with the 1960s, or anything up until the 2010s, I would say, and and feel that sense of longing.
1: Yeah. Well, and when you bring up ruins, I know the ruins were very important in writings on the gothic and the sublime.
0: The romantics were obsessed with ruins. right? Tintern Abbey, for example, is a poem by Wordsworth <laughs> that talks about ruins.
1: When I try to conceptualize the gothic, what I have learned is it's often about the conflict between the past and the present or the past inserting itself into the present when we think it's gone and a ruin is exactly that we exist in this space where someone else once existed, where this thing was and no longer is, but kind of still is.
0: Yeah. And and getting into the Gothic and Romantics, something that Scarsborough writes about is this idea of ruins, which we can also think of like photographic ruins or memories of things that are no longer there. I'll just quote her. She says, "...some ruins appear more beautiful in their ruinated form than they did at the height of their architectural form. In such instances, we generally do not value what is missing. Rather, we value the interesting interplay between nature and artifact, site and structure." And so although we might be valuing what's missing, we might also just be valuing the interesting strangeness of the fact that things go missing and what happens in that process.
1: Yeah, She
0: links this to the sublime. And when I say the sublime, I'm talking about that romantic with a capital R idea that you look upon something like a landscape and it's so beautiful that it's actually horrifying and scary and there's this interplay between terror and desire and and, aw. and awe Aww. yeah and so if we look at dean's photographs as an idealized suburban america that is then haunted by these ghosts or if we look at any mythic object of nostalgia like the teacups at Disneyland we could consider these an aesthetic ruin a place that's not only of escape to the past but also a place where we ruminate on sublime ephemerality so we're we're looking at what it means to be ephemeral and for these things that are so strong in our imagination to be fleeting, or possibly to not even exist. (laughs) Because one of the books that I read the introduction to but didn't quite find useful enough for this particular episode, so I want to come back to it so I didn't finish it is the Way We Never Were American Families in the Nostalgia Trap by back Stephanie Coontz <laughs> Yeah, the Way we never were. This is a book that really digs into the details of how the quote unquote traditional family that so many politicians and artists and common people have longed for, doesn't really exist. Yeah,
1: you know what? The New Philosophy Tube. She talks about this idea too.
0: Yeah, it seems like it's an excellent book and I'm definitely going to go back and finish it after this episode. But I think it really speaks to this idea that sometimes the ruins or the memories that we are encountering are not even ruins of something that truly existed. Think of, for example, the myth of the Old South, you know? <laughs> and
1: we're going back to the Ghostbusters episode totally, here, which I right. touched on in my notes, too.
0: Yeah. So it's it's something that people long for, that there are emblems of, that there are ruins of, right, for sure. And yet the thing that we have to contend with is not just that this was an ephemeral place, but that this was a place... That didn't exist as we think it might have in our memory. Right. And and we'll talk later when we get into nostalgia about competing narratives. But I, I like the idea of a photograph or a ruin as a place of confronting ephemerality and I want to share one more quote from this article, because I thought it was just a mic drop moment. (laughs) Um, So in the conclusion, Scarsborough says that since people can visit historic sites to which they have no prior personal connection and still have a meaningful experience engaging with ruins, quote, nostalgia is an important component, but ephemerality might be more so, end quote. And then she writes, in conclusion... The past really is a foreign country. Our aesthetic engagements with things that are no longer there allow us to visit, but never to emigrate. End quote. Isn't that
1: good? (laughs) It's really good. And it's really interesting. And I want to think about that more with regards to ghostliness. What I want to say, and I think that this is just something to maybe ruminate on as we continue through this episode, because we're going to be talking about nostalgia specifically for the 20th century, Mm -hmm. is I was thinking when we were talking about ruins, how the kind of people who are into urbex Mm -hmm. and the kind of people who are into antiquing Mm
0: -hmm.
1: are not generally conceptualized as the same population And yet, I think that through this lens, you could say that they're in ways, at least, searching for that same thing.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Let's come back to that when we get into nostalgia and we get into the 20th century, because I I think you're absolutely right. And I I wonder... There's another point in the article, I had to cut it because I just had too many quotes, but the author... Too many
1: quotes? I wouldn't know anything about that. (laughs) Oh my
0: gosh. The author quotes another writer who's talking about how contemporary ruins are different from ancient ruins, in part because they haven't had the time to decay in a way that's... I guess, fantastic. And and, (laughs) for lack of a better word, sexy, where it's like, ooh, there's all these creepy crawlies and vines. And it's, a you know, this slow decay that has this sort of poetic aspect to it, the the hands of time. And so instead, they're kind of just scary. And we can talk a a little bit about abandoned malls and (laughs) etc, which we probably are going to have to someday yeah, do totally. it, a deep dive on. Let's wrap up this discussion of spirit photography and come back to what's going on in photographs, not just as as ruins of a society that may or may not have existed. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Speaking of hauntings in the visual tradition, the imagery of extras in spirit photographs used common ghostly imagery of times past and established iconography for the future. Listen to the Sheet Ghosts episode. Mm -hmm. Dean's use of sheet ghosts betrays a similar iconographic process. She is looking at the most iconic, recognizable way to depict a ghost and utilizing that. Also, if we acknowledge that in a secondhand photograph, the subject always already possesses a ghostly quality, as we've been kind of hovering around, so to speak. This would raise the question of how else would you denote ghostliness in this process? The sheet ghost is a really good tool for that. And I was also thinking about that quote regarding Mumler. Dean's photographic doctoring instead makes the visible invisible, as you anticipated, I would say, Mm -hmm. or at least obscured what used to be a visible photographic subject, is now no longer a person that we can see. If we consider the question of medium in the context of the earlier quote from or attributed to Delaroche, painting is dead, Dean performs a collaboration between the two media, painting and photography, marrying painting with the medium that was thought to be its downfall. This is a one-sided collaboration across artists, media, time, ownership, and relationship. Nice. And what I also think is interesting when we think about relationship is that generally in the photos Dean is using, there probably was a relationship between photographer and (laughs) photography, (laughs) (laughs) photographer and sitter, but there was also no relationship to like people in the background of these photos. Mm -hmm. They didn't generally consent to being in that photo. And then Dean is taking this photo without any of their consent and in inserting herself into the narrative. And I do not say that with any negative connotation. I don't think there's any problem with what she's doing.
0: Right. In some ways, it's refreshing to create anonymity with photos rather than to use photos as a device of capturing people yeah. against their will. Yeah. It's not a gotcha moment, it's like a lost ya.
1: And when I think about Dean and DeLaroche and all this stuff, it's also worth considering these proclamations that photography would kill painting in the light of contemporary panics about AI-generated images mm. defeating traditional art or artists. And I mean, it is not as simple as that. Absolutely, no. Very it comes complex with its own new
0: problems. Yeah. But in some ways, it's it's almost like Dean is killing photographs or people in photographs with her <laughs> painting. So another yeah. full circle moment.
1: And as we wrap up the notion of spirit photography, in his chapter, Harvey argues that the proliferation of photographic technology has enabled anyone to become a spirit photographer. We discussed the difference between spirit photography and ghost photography in our previous episode on spirit photography. Ghost photography tends to be defined by the amateur status of the photographer and use of newer technology. Though Angela Dean does not participate in the chicanery of classic spirit photographers, we can see her practice in conversation with classical spirit photography.
0: Right. So it's it's more about the photographs that were being taken in studios and set up to create ghostly images than it is about people going on the hunt with their digital cameras to catch a ghost on, right, or, on tape, real ghost caught on tape.
1: Or when I think of ghost photography, I so much think about orbs and things yeah, that flashes. Or aura, even aura Things that were either chance, like, there is the doctoring after the fact, but I mean, the fact that Dean is using the most manual means of doctoring these photos.
0: She's really calling attention to it. it yeah. It's it's almost, it's not trying to hide this Method. It's trying to highlight it. Yeah,
1: manipulation. Right. The other word.
0: Yeah. Let's take a quick break, and then we'll get more into Angela Dean, nostalgia of the twenty first century for the twentieth century, and and more.
1: Greetings, listeners. This is Quest coming to you from the other side, by which I mean the editing room, by which I mean my car. Our discussion on Angela Dean and the nostalgia evoked by her ghost paintings proved so productive, we've decided to split the episode into two parts. In other words, we recorded for longer than we thought we would. So consider this your intermission before the second act. If you would like to contact us, you can email us at gwp2pod at gmail.com. You can follow us on Tumblr at Ghosts Were people too and on Instagram, at Ghosts for People 2 as well. You should rate and review us, if that is possible, on your podcatcher of choice. Ghosts for People 2 will be back in the near future, with part two on Angela Dean, so there's no need to feel homesick for us just yet. Take a picture, it'll last longer, and as it says on the Ouija board, goodbye.